0: Chapter Two of the De Bercy Affair by Gordon Holmes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Darkness. Winter felt at once relieved and displeased. Twice during the hour had his authority been disregarded. He was willing to ignore Clark's method of doling out important facts because such was the man's secretive nature, but for no. The urgent messages, sent to every place where they might reach him, each and all summoned him to Scotland Yard, without the slightest reference to the Feldisham mansion's crime. It was with a stiff upper lip, therefore, that the chief inspector acknowledged the salute of the constable who admitted him to the ill-fated Frenchwoman's abode. Fourneau was his friend, Fourneau might be admirable, Fourneau was the right man in the right place but Furneaux must first receive an official reminder of the claims of discipline. The subdued electric lights in the hall, revealed within a vista of oriental color blended with western ideals of comfort. Two exquisitely fashioned lamps of hammered iron, rifled from a Peking temple, softened by their dragons and lotus leaves the glare of the high-powered globes within them. Praying carpets, frayed by the deserts of Araby, covered the geometric design of a parquet floor, and bright-hued draperies of Mirzapur hid the rigid outlines of British carpentry. A perfume of joss-sticks still clung to the air. It suggested the apartments of a sultana rather than the bower of a fashionable lady in the west end of London. First impressions are powerful, and Winter acknowledged the spell of the unusual here but his impassive face showed no sign of this when he asked the constable the whereabouts of Mr. Forneau. "'In there, sir,' said the man, pointing to a door. Winter noted instantly that the floor creaked beneath his light tread. The rugs deadened his footsteps, but the parquetry complained of his weight. It was, he perceived, almost impossible for anyone to traverse an old flooring of that type without revealing the fact to ordinary acute ears.' Once when his heel fell on the bare wood it rang with a sharp yet hollow note. It seemed, somehow, that the place was empty, that it missed its presiding spirit. Oddly enough, as he remembered afterwards, he hesitated with outstretched hand in front of the closed door. He was doubtful whether or not to knock. As a matter of fact, he did tap slightly on a panel before turning the handle. Then he received his second vague impression of a new and strange element in the history of a crime. The room was in complete darkness. Though Winter never admitted the existence of nerves, he did not even try to conceal from his consciousness that he started distinctly when he looked into a blackness rendered all the more striking by the glimpse of a few feet of floor revealed by the off-shine from the hall-light. "'Are you here, for no? he forced himself to say, quickly. Ah, that you, Winter, came a voice from the interior. Yes, I was dreaming in the dusk, I think. Let me give you a light. Dusk, you call it? Gad, it's like a vault. Winter's right hand had found the electric switches, and two clusters of lamps on wall brackets leaped alight. Furneaux was standing, his hands behind his back, almost in the center, but the chief inspector gathered that the room's silent occupant had been seated in a corner farthest removed from the windows, and that his head had been propped on his clenched hands, for the dull red marks of his knuckles were still visible on both cheeks. Each was aware of a whiff of surprise. "Queer trick sitting in the dark?' Fourneau remarked, his eyes on the floor. "'I find I collect my wits better that way, sometimes. Sometimes one cannot have light enough.' for instance, the moment I saw fear in Lady Holt's face I knew that her diamonds had been stolen by herself. Winter reflected that light was equally unkind to Fourneau as to Lady Holt, for the dapper little man looked pallid and ill at ease in this flood of electric brilliancy. There was a silence. Then Fourneau volunteered the remark. In this instance thought is needed, not observation. One might gaze at that for twenty years, but it would not reveal the cause of Mademoiselle de Bercy's murder. That was a dark stain near the centre of the golden-brown carpet. Winter bent a professional eye on it, but his mind was assimilating two new ideas. In the first place, Fourneau was not the cheery colleague whose perky chatterings were his most deadly weapons when lulling a rogue into fancied security. In the second, he himself had not been prepared for the transit from a hall of eastern gorgeousness to a room fastidiously correct in its reproduction of the period labelled by connoisseurs after Louis the Fifteenth. The moment was not ripe for an inquiry on Entferneau's object in hastening to Feldisham mansions without first reporting himself. Winter somehow felt that the question would jar just then and there, and though not forgotten, it was waived. Still, there was a hint of it in his next comment. "'I must confess I am glad to find you here,' he said. "'Clark has cleared the ground somewhat, but, um, he has a heavy hand, and I have turned him on to a new job—anarchists.' He half-expected an answering gleam of fun in the dark eyes lifted to his, for these two were close at all seasons, but for no, seemed not even to hear. His lips muttered, "'I wonder—wonder wonder what?' What purpose could be served by this girl's death? Who bore her such a bitter grudge that not even her death would sate their hatred? But they must try also to destroy her beauty? Now the chief inspector had learnt that everyone who had seen the dead woman expressed this same sentiment, yet it came unexpectedly from Fourneau's lips, because Fourneau never said the obvious thing. Clark believes—Winter loathed the necessity for this constant reference to Clark— Clarke believes that she was killed by one of two people, either a jealous husband or a dissatisfied lover. As usual, Clarke is wrong. He may be. He is. In spite of his prior agreement with Fourneau's estimate of their colleague's intelligence, Winter felt nettled at this omniscience. From the outset, his clear brain had been puzzled by this crime, and Fourneau's extraordinary pose was not the least bewildering feature about it. Oh, come now, he said. You cannot have been here many minutes, and it is early days to speak so positively. I have been hunting you the whole afternoon. In fact, ever since I saw what a ticklish business this was likely to prove, and I don't suppose you've managed to gather all the threads of it into your fingers so rapidly. There are so few, muttered Furneaux, looking down on the carpet with the morbid eyes of one who saw a terrible vision there. Well, it is a good deal to have discovered the instrument with which the crime was committed. Fourneau's mobile face instantly became alive with excitement. It was a long, thin dagger, he cried. Something in the surgical line, I imagine. Who found it, and where? Some men in Winter's shoes might have smiled in a superior way. He did not. He knew Fourneau profoundly distrusted Clark. "'There is some mistake,' he contented himself with saying. "'Miss de Bercy was killed by a piece of flint, "'shaped like an axe-head, "'one of those queer objects of the Stone Age, "'which is ticketed carefully after it is found in an ancient cave, "'and then put away in a glass case. "'Clark searched the room this morning and found it there, "'tucked away underneath.' and he turned round to point to the foot of the boudoir grand piano, embellished with Watteau panels on its rosewood, that stood in the angle between the door and the nearest window. The animation died out of Fourneau's features as quickly as it had appeared there. "'Useful, of course,' he murmured. "'Did you bring it?' "'No, it is in my office.' "'But M- Mademoiselle de Bercy was not killed in that way. She was supple, active, lithe. She would have struggled, screamed, probably overpowered her adversary. No, the doctor admits that after a hasty examination he jumped to conclusions, for not one of the external cuts and bruises could have produced unconsciousness, not all of them death. Miss de Bercy was stabbed through the right eye by something strong and pointed, something with a thin, blunt-edged blade. I urged a thorough examination of the head, and the post-mortem proved the correctness of my theory. Winter, one of the shrewdest officials who had ever won distinction in Scotland Yard, did not fail to notice that curious slip of a syllable before mademoiselle, but it was explained a moment later when Fourneau used the English prefix miss before the name. It was more natural for Fourneau to use the French word, however. Winter spoke French fluently, like an educated Englishman, but Fourneau spoke it like a native of Paris, The difference between the two was clearly shown by their pronunciation of de Bercy. Winter sounded three distinct syllables, Fourneau practically two, with a slurred R that Winter could not have uttered to save his life. Moreover, he was considerably taken aback by the discovery that Fourneau had evidently been working on the case during several hours. "'You have gone into the affair thoroughly, then,' he blurted out. "'Oh, yes.' I read of the murder this morning, just as I was leaving Kenterstone on my way to report at the yard. Kenterstone! He was almost minded to inquire if the local superintendent was a fat man. Sir Peter and Lady Holt left town early in the day, so I went to Kenterstone from Brighton late last night. The pawnbroker who held Lady Holt's diamonds was treating himself to a long weekend by the sea, and I thought it advisable to see him in person and explain matters. A memory of the Finchley Road station sergeant, who thought that he had seen Fourneau get on a bus at 6 p.m. in North London the previous evening, shot through Winter's mind, but he kept to the main line of their talk. "'Do you know who this Rose de Bercy really is?' he suddenly demanded. For a second Fourneau seemed to hesitate, but the reply came in an even tone. "'I have reason to believe that she was born in Jersey, and that her maiden name was Mirabelle Armand,' he said." THE ROSE QUEEN OF A VILLAGE fete EIGHT YEARS AGO? PERHAPS IT WAS Fourneau's TURN TO BE SURPRISED, BUT HE SHOWED NO SIGN. MAY I ASK HOW YOU ASCERTAINED THAT FACT? HE ASKED QUIETLY. IT IS PUBLISHED IN ONE OF THE EVENING PAPERS. A MAN WHO HAPPENED TO PHOTOGRAPH HER IN JERSEY RECOGNIZED THE LIKENESS WHEN HE SAW THE ACADEMY PORTRAIT OF ROSE DE BERCY. BUT IF YOU HAVE NOT SEEN HIS STATEMENT ALREADY, HOW DID YOU COME TO KNOW THAT MISS DE BERCY WAS MIRABEL Armand? I'm a Jersey man by birth, and although I quitted the island early in life, I often go back there. Indeed, I was present at the very Fete you mentioned." "'I suppose the young lady was in a carriage and surrounded by a crowd? It would be an odd thing if you figured in the photograph,' laughed Winter. "'There have been more unlikely coincidences but my early sight of the remarkable woman who was killed in this room last night explains my intense desire to track her murderer before Clark had time to baffle my efforts. It forms, too, a sort of excuse for my departure from official routine. Of course, I would have reported myself this evening, but up to the present I have been working hard to try and dispel the fog of motive that blocks the way. You have heard of Rupert Osborne, then?" Fourneau was certainly not the man whom Winter was accustomed to meet at other times. Usually quick as lightning to grasp or discard a point, tonight he appeared to experience no little difficulty in focusing his attention on the topic of the moment. The mention of Rupert Osborne's name did not evoke the characteristically vigorous repudiation that Winter looked for. Instead, there was a marked pause, and when the reply came it was with an effort. Yes, I suppose Clark wants to arrest him. He has thought of it. But Osborne's movements last night are so clearly defined? So one would imagine, but Clark still doubts. Why? Winter told of the taxicab driver and the significant journey taken by his fare. Fourneau shook his head. Strange, if true, he said. Why should Osborne kill the woman he meant to marry? She may have jilted him. No, oh no, It was, it must have been, the aim of her life to secure a rich husband. She was beautiful, but cold. She had the eye that weighs and measures. Have you ever seen the Mona Lisa in the Louvre? Winter did not answer, conscious of a subtle suspicion that Fourneau really knew far more of the inner history of this tragedy than had appeared hitherto. Clark, in his own peculiar way, was absurdly secretive, but that Fourneau should want to remain silent was certainly baffling. By the way," said Winter, with seeming irrelevance, if you were in Brighton and Kenterstone yesterday afternoon and evening, you had not much time to spare in London? No. Then the station sergeant at Finchley Road was mistaken in thinking that he saw you in that locality about six o'clock. Jumping on to a bus was his precise description of your movements. I was there at that time. How did you manage it? St. John's Wood is far away from either Victoria or Charing Cross and I suppose you reached Canterstone by way of Charing Cross? I returned from Brighton at three o'clock, and did not visit Sir Peter Holt until half-past nine at Kenterstone. Had I disturbed him before dinner, the consequence might have been serious for her ladyship. Besides, I wished to avoid the local police at Kenterstone. Both men smiled constrainedly. There was a barrier between them, and Furneaux apparently, was not inclined to remove it. As for Winter, he could not conquer the impression that, thus far, their conversation was of a nature that might be looked for between a police official and a reluctant witness, assuredly not between colleagues, who were also on the best of terms as comrades. Fourneau was obviously on guard, controlling his face, his words, his very gestures. That so outspoken a man should deem it necessary to adopt such a role with his close friend was annoying but long years of forced self-repression had taught Winter the wisdom of throttling back utterances which might be regretted afterwards. Indeed, he tried valiantly to repair the fast-widening breach. "'Have a cigar,' he said, proffering a well-filled case. "'Suppose we just sit down and go through the affair from A to Z. Much of our alphabet is missing, but we may be able to guess a few additional letters.' Fourneau smiled again. This time there was the faintest ripple of amusement in his eyes. "'Now you know how you hate to see me maltreat a good Havana,' he protested. "'This time I forgive you before the offence. Anything to jolt you into your usual rut. Why, man alive, here have I been hunting you all day, yet no sooner are you engaged on the very job for which I wanted you than I find myself cross-examining you as though—as though you had committed some flagrant error.' the chief inspector did not often flounder in his speech, as he had done twice that night. He was about to say, as though I suspected you of killing Rose de Bercy yourself. But his brain generally worked in front of his voice, and he realized that the hypothesis would have sounded absurd, almost insane. Fourneau took the cigar. He did not light it, but deliberately crushed the wrapper between thumb and forefinger, and then smelled it with the air of one who dallies with a full-scented rose passing it to and fro under his nostrils. Winter, meantime, was darting several small rings of smoke through one wide and slowly dissipating circle, both being now seated, Winter's bulk, genially aggressive, well thrust forward, but Furneau, small, compact, a bundle of nerves under rigid control, was sunk back into the depths of a large and deep-seated chair, and seemed to shirk the new task imposed on his powers of endurance. Winter was so conscious of this singularly unexpected behavior on his friend's part that his conscience smote him. "'I say, old man,' he said, "'you look thoroughly done up. I hardly realized that you had been hard at work all day. Have you eaten anything?' "'Had all I wanted,' said Fourneau, thawing a little under this solicitude. "'Perhaps you didn't want enough. Come, own up. Have you dined?' "'No, I was not hungry. Where did you lunch?' I ate a good breakfast. Winter sprang to his feet again. By Jove! he cried. This affair seems to have taken hold of you. I meant to send for the hall-porter and the French maid. Pauline is her name, I think. She ought to be able to throw some light on her mistress's early life. But we can leave all that till tomorrow. Come to my club. A cutlet and a glass of wine will make a new man of you. Fourneau rose at once. Any one might have believed that he was glad to postpone the proposed examination of the servants. "'That will be splendid,' he said with an air of relief that compared markedly with his reticent mood of the past few minutes. "'The mere mention of food has given me an appetite. I suppose I am fagged out, or as near it as I have ever been. Moreover, I can tell you everything that any person in these mansions knows of what took place here between six and eight o'clock last night,' a good deal more by the way than clark has found out though he scored a point over that stone where is it in the office you said i should like to see it in the morning you will see more than that clark has arranged to meet the taxicab driver at 10 o'clock he meant to confront him with rupert osborne but we must manage things differently of course the man's testimony may be important Alibi or no alibi, it will be awkward for Osborne if a credible witness swears that he was in this locality for nearly a quarter of an hour about the very time that this poor young lady was killed. Furneaux, holding the broken cigar under his nose, offered no comment, but as they entered the hall, he said, glancing at his quaint decoration, If opportunity makes the thief, so, I imagine, does it sometimes inspire the murderer. Given the clear moment, the wish, the fury, can't you picture the effect these bizarre surroundings would exercise on a mind already strung to the madness of crime? For every willful slayer of a fellow human being is mad, mad. Ah, there was the genius of a maniac in the choice of that flint axe to rend Mirabelle Armaud's smooth skin. Yet she had the right to live. Perhaps. He stopped and Winter anew felt that this musing fourneau of to-day was a different personality from the fourneau of his intimate knowledge. And how compellingly strange it was that he should choose to describe Rose de Bercy by the name which she had ceased to bear during many years. Winter dispelled the scent of the joss-sticks by a mighty puff of honest tobacco-smoke. "'Oh, come along,' he growled. "'Let us eat. We are both in need of it. The flat is untenanted, of course.' very well, lock the door, he added, addressing the policeman. Leave the key with the hall-porter, and tell him not to admit anybody, on any pretext whatsoever, until Mr. Furneaux and I come here in the morning. End of chapter 2